Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Neuroscience, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Joseph Fridman, and I'm one of the hosts of this channel. And today, I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Anne-Sophie Barwich about her new book, Smellosophy, What the Nose Tells the Mind. Anne-Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. And so I'm wondering if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about how you came to write this book. This is a book where a ton of disciplines kind of cohere and inform the narrative. History of science makes its way into this book, psychology, a fair amount of neuroscience, a fair amount of philosophy of science, especially when it comes to what perception even is and how neurosciences and behavioral sciences approach it. Um, I'm wondering how you came to work and be interested in all of these fields and then how they came together in this particular project about olfaction. That question will require a couple of answers, actually, because there's always more than one narrative uh, to to any book. But as you already indicated, there's lots of lots of things going on in that book, and they came together in a beautiful way. I got interested in smell originally by accident. Um, I started my PhD with a different topic. I had a crisis early on, like this is leading nowhere, etc. And then I stumbled over a, a talk about smell. And I was like, well, okay, I have no idea how we smell. And then it turns out that actually we don't have any idea about how we smell. The scientists don't know how we how a lot of things are happening, but it's ongoing and we're discovering more by the minute. So this is an incredibly new field. And the historian and philosopher of science in me got fascinated because I always I loved always uh, books about the history of, of science. And I always thought it must have been so cool to be there when all the action happened. And then I realized, like, this is right now happening in smell. So why not document it? So I wanted to do kind of an oral history of, of smell, looking at science and practice, because we have such a big gap between how science is done and then how we write about it and how it's documented. And so this is how the idea came about to do interviews with the scientists in their field. And I had the absolute pleasure and luck to work with Stuart Feuerstein in his lab, got access to a lot of other uh, laboratories and people working on smell. And during that time, while I was working more and more on the kind of more technical side when it comes to how do we do experiments, how does science progress in action, there was some question that I couldn't shake off, namely, hang on a second, there are so many questions open in smell that are deeply philosophical. So when we think about what smell is and how to map smells in the brain, these are conceptual questions. And there are so many different experiments that you could analyze in comparison with each other to see what do we know, what do we not know, where, where, shall, we, where shall we place the next question. This is where I got more interested in actually participating as a philosopher and empirical philosopher in that field. And where the book, this is why the book has so many different angles to it, to really write a story, okay, how shall we think about smell as an ongoing field, what kind of questions to ask, and to bring that into, into a full narrative. So this is uh, uh, kind of like different things coming together. But basically, at some point, I was just like, how do we actually smell? So I think one of the main um, 
provocations for a book like this for somebody, whether they're a practicing researcher or kind of an amateur dilettante, somebody interested in the brain and the body, um, is the idea that the perceptual sciences often take vision um, the way that humans see as its primary template. We notice this in our language when we understand something it's come to light it's seen in a new way um, things become visible um, and it's not just in our language of understanding where this comes out it's actually in the way that we organize our investigation of all the other sensations and perceptions that humans have and smell turns a lot of the assumptions we might have coming from a visual space on its head. Can you talk a little bit about that as a kind of just opening provocation for people? Why smell is such an interesting place to to start an investigation of philosophy and perception and neuroscience? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I see what you've done there, huh? uh, but uh, it's it's precisely what got me started in terms of trying to f- understand smell in its own right, because our model system, when it comes to perception and also many theories of the brain and cognition, is vision. And that's historically grown because it was a uh, a sense that is immediate to our consciousness. We see things and it's right away in our consciousness. And we think we we perceive everything we see, even though, of course, visual researchers know that there's a lot of subconscious processing going on. But then I thought, hang on a second. We talk about things like the objects of perception, perceptual objects. Can we apply these theoretical concepts also to other senses? And smell doesn't really seem to fit the picture. So when you think of something like the orientation of an object, it kind of makes no sense to speak of the orientation of a smell. Uh, there's something else going on. Also, boundaries are different. We, we talk about smells in a different way. We seem to think that they're less objective because we have lots of variation going on uh, between between ourselves. And even if you smell the same odor at different times, it will have a different quality sometimes, a different experience. And I thought, well, hang on a second. A, should we rethink theories of perception in light of smell? Is there something we overlooked? And furthermore, should we also rethink vision perhaps in light of what we what we uh, learn from smell? And I think both are actually true. And uh, we can learn A, more about perception when it comes to other senses through smell, proprioception, so how we perceive our body as moving in space, interoception, how the body experiences itself. So all these kind of things. Um, also the integration of cognition and effect and emotion, for instance, which is often modeled two separately, as, as you know, of course. And uh, then furthermore, we underestimate a lot of things about vision as well. Many things where we're so puzzled about visual illusions. These are these are not things where something goes wrong, but where we can actually learn about how the system works. And a lot of these things are fairly similar to how we should think about smell a bit more when it comes to precisely the question of what are the causal mechanisms rather than just, oh, here's the impression, the percept, and here's the object that caused it. No, there's a lot of stuff going on in between. And that's the fascinating bit. And uh, smell is a great thing because it questions all our intuitions. Absolute all of them. Like, as I said, you've got the seemingly intuitive difference between subjectivity and objectivity. But subjectivity is often just a reference for we have no idea how it works, what the actual causes are. So when people just vary in their perceptions, variation is not subjectivity. Variation means there are different angles, different perspectives that will or that we have to find out what the causal basis of that is. Is it some cognitive bias? Is it a genetic difference? Like, what is it? And to find out what the causal mechanisms are is what we should be studying, not just kind of, okay, this is our impression and match it somehow to the world. And so for a long time, 
this sort of subjective nature of smell in at least I think the historical chapter of your book, the, the first one that kind of takes us through all the way up to the early 90s when there's this massive breakthrough. It says that there are actually a lot of different ways that people um, try to dissect this ephemerality or difficulty of categorizing the feeling of smell, but also the the chemical objects which lead to, you know, something odorous in the air that we might pick up on. Um, you say that, you know, your book, like many histories of science, starts with, with these ancient Greeks. So what were some of the first recorded understandings of, of smell, at least in kind of the, the Western canon? Um, where did where did folks begin in in their understanding? So the fun thing with the history of smell is uh, really that you notice what's not being mentioned, uh, and that's the biology. So what people have been trying to study since uh, Plato, since Aristotle, like really the traditional thinkers uh, come to the fore here, is, well, uh, to what extent, what's the materiality of smell? But by materiality, they really mean, what do we perceive? And there was the question of, is it, for instance, particles or fumes? That was Plato's idea. Or is it some kind of vibration thing in some ether-like substance, as Aristotle uh, thought? But they didn't really think about it much beyond that. It was just it was basically a basic ontological question. So, what kind of material is there? What is the world made of? What kind of things are there? But they didn't really think about well, how do we perceive that in terms of our own body, the sensory system? There were few few ideas about that. And to be fair to them. Um, it was very hard to study. At least uh, you couldn't just simply carve it up and trace it like you could do it today. Um, so there was a lot of emphasis on what kind of materials were smelling. And there was also propagated later in medieval times where people are just re-adopting uh, ancient theories and then looking at how to integrate that with their ontology. So the whole Aristotle waves versus uh, particles and Plato's uh, controversy was still going on. And only a few medievals actually tried to figure out, well, is there any kind of physiological basis by which to explain that? And my favorite example is that uh, Bartholomew, the Englishman, had then the idea that, well, you know, you've got these holes in the skull between the nose and, and where the brain is. So this is why smell is actually a direct access to, to the spirit. So there's, it's, a, it's the most cognitive sense, you could even say. It's a very mental sense. And that fascinated me. But it really, really, over, over the years, uh, hardly anyone looked at the biology. So even like with vision, at least people studied the eye, but the nose, there were mainly anatomical drawings, but it was totally unclear how we smelled. It was even for a long time, not sure whether you have to breathe to perceive odors. Um, and so this is where it was such a nice playground for experimentalists later to start. Well, how could you actually study smell? Because it's invisible. You can't control the stimulus. You, it was long unclear whether it's even chemicals or what you're smelling. And the nice thing that fascinated me, and this is what led me to write that first chapter as a history. I mean, I know many, many books always start with a history of a topic, but this topic is really a history of omission and how people try to point at the right thing. And here you basically had, and, and uh, that's what fascinated me so much, this huge ontological shift from you've got some kind of material what the world is made of atoms or waves or some kind of e ether or, or atoms and then uh, during the 17th 18th century uh, and then later in the 19th century this fundamental shift towards chemicals happened and then something happened that people underestimate namely a complete shift in what is natural and what is artificial because 
at the end of the 19th century, you had not just the realization that smells are made of chemicals and that there's a chemical structure associated with certain qualities, but you could create smells in the laboratory that have never existed on the face of the earth. So you could create a stimulus that that is completely new and your nose can pick it up immediately, which is unlike any, imagine, as if you could create a new color, as if you could, could create a new sound, a, a new kind of touch. I mean, that's what makes smell so fascinating to me. You're expanding reality, the material reality of the world through signs. And of course, that prompts you to ask, hang on a second, what does that mean for the brain? Like, how can you perceive something that doesn't really exist, but then it comes into existence and you still have a mental quality associated with it? I mean, that's just, that blew my mind. Yeah, there there was a moment, I think, where you wrote that an organic, like odorous substance was produced from something inorganic, um, and that this challenges our understandings. So there was the, you could really say the, the, the big revolution that's often referred to in chemistry, but not enough associated with a sense of smell. It was Friedrich Wöhler. Um, in uh, the 19th century, who did this uh, experiment where he synthesized urea, so from horse urine, um, from inorganic inorganic materials. And that was a fundamental breakthrough because previously people thought that there's a, a causal difference between how organic materials, organic chemistry is organized and what kind of causal principles um, uh, are at place here versus how uh, like organic and inorganic uh, are divided. And the interesting thing is that people thought, well, with organic materials, you've got some vital spirits, something, you know, added some kind of extra magic spa- uh, spice in there. So you've got this vitalism biology who, who, who came, came to play at that time. And he showed, no, 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 these are the same causal principles when it comes to chemical interactions. So this is, and it came really from trying to synthesize urea uh, and, and horse urine, and which was, of course, a readily available substance with a, with a distinct smell. And it was both a breakthrough for chemistry in general, like organic and inorganic chemistry is the same thing, has the same causal principles, as well as smell, because it showed, hang on a second, there is a smelling principle and it's purely chemical. There is no substance, so no immaterial spiritual essence floating around with these particles, which is what many people before thought, such as uh, the Dutch physiologist Hermann Birchhaver. He really thought like, yeah, these are particles, but they're somehow accompanied by some immaterial oily substance. Um, and that's the spiritus rector. So there were many kind of weird ideas about smell. And it turns out, no, it's purely material it's very physicalist but that doesn't mean it's not magical in the sense that you can't explain uh, explore new questions it prompts us to rethink questions about the mind and materiality namely it is material but there is something that cannot just be simply explained by oh it's the essence of things well hang on a second there are certain things that haven't existed so how shall we describe the essence then certainly not by visual categories and so this development allows the study of olfaction to benefit from sort of modern period of chemistry, where there's an understanding of how different chemical elements are oriented, that there's periodicity in um, the structure of the chemicals of, of, of the world, that there are all sorts of rules to their binding. And then there's also this attendant desire to apply that same type of rigorous organization to the sensations of smell to the perceptions of smell. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? So that was for a long time, actually, really the challenge. Like, how do you, on the one hand, 
the reason why smell was dominated by chemistry is because it seemed to be the most accessible and experimentally controllable way of studying smell. Because you've got materials, you've got chemicals, and you can compare them in terms of their structure. And from the end of the 19th century towards the end of the 20th century, this was mainly uh, the primary thing. Like, okay, you can you can look at similarities between chemicals, structural similarities, and try to organize smell by that. But the psychology was always... Um, neglected a little bit because it was so hard to study to make it to turn it into some kind of objective standardized procedure and there were a couple of breakthroughs such as at the end of the 19th century you had this Dutch physiologist um, Hendrik Zwademacher who developed the olfactometer a way to administer the stimulus in a controlled manner so that you could measure how much like the concentration of the stimulus you're ad- ad- admitting etc et and then there was a woman actually who's uh, my favorite uh, was one of my favorite heroes in the history of smell is Elena Gamble because she wrote her dissertation back then when uh, that olfactometer was developed and she was the first to go like hang on a second she was by the way a, a student of uh, Titchener and she was like, hang on, so there's this Weber law, Weber Fechner law of sensations. And we, we studied it with uh, with vision, for instance, but does it also apply to smell? So she wrote this. This is a, a law of psychophysics, if I'm not Precisely, mistaken. Precisely, yes. That that changes in the strength of a stimulus and how it corresponds to um, reported sensation. Yes, so you've got a pro- you've got a proportional increase, basically. And uh, it's 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 you can calculate it, it's lawful. And she showed that actually applies to smell. So smell is not the odd one out. It's not some whim of, of the mind. You can measure it. You can uh, put it into a measurable object. You can com- compare it between different people. But it's, of course, very, very hard to do in terms of methodologically. Like slightest changes in the concentration of an odorant will have a psychological effect. It's more, co- It's complex, but it's not impossible. It's just difficult. So she published that at the end of the 19th century. But for some reason, it, it's like if you look at the history of psychology, it's it, it took a long time for people to really pick up on smell. And I think partly it's uh, because it was often just associated as a non-cognitive sense, as some brutish sensation that really doesn't tell us much about the mind. I mean, many people have been, uh, many scientists and philosophers have been very dismissive about smell. It's like, well, it's a, it's the most disgusting grace uh, disgraceful uh, uh, sense uh, according to Manuel Kant um, but I think this is actually a mistake because a there's a lot of things that are now becoming more and more interesting for psychologists and cognitive scientists that are perfectly exemplified by smell such as the interaction between cognition and effect for instance the judgment the top-down pr- uh, uh, processes that now are a hot topic and I'm always wondering like why don't you look at smell this is where the question of perceptual judgment and all the things that come into that is perfectly exemplified and you can still put your name on the map because there's so many things still to explore but that's a that's a development which is now gathering more and more momentum luckily and you mentioned so even aristotle i think mentioned something about that where he says that certain smells are more appetitive um, they're more pleasant when you're hungry than when you're not that there are um not just i think that um this scientist you mentioned um uh, eleanor eleanor gamble um yeah gamble this the student of titchener um, so you, she talks a bit about 
um, how state how trait differences in people that there are individual variations and how sensitive people are to variations in the concentration of different odorants um, but also there's this kind of tradition even going back to Aristotle that things smell differently when we feel differently and when the our bodies are different precisely that's why why people so often thought oh this is just like a whim uh it's a subjective feeling but right now we're realizing more and more no we need to look at the biology of how that works and uh, one cause for instance uh why people are perceiving things differently is genetics the olfactory system is one of the most genetically diverse systems and that causes a lot of variation in olfactory receptor expressions and uh, in turn the sensitivity and the detection of uh, of odorants and my favorite example is uh, cilantro because uh, you always have I, I like to ask my students like who of you likes cilantro who of you actually doesn't like cilantro you always have like one or two kids raising their arms the reason for that is uh, genetic there's a mutation near one olfactory receptor gene so people who don't like cilantro it's like this is not fresh this is not green it's pungent it's soapy i don't like it they have a they have a different like there's a difference in genetics this is not some kind of weird thing and you can study it you can pin it down it's a localized co uh, cause and that applies to many other cases so another uh, example of mine which i like a lot is androstenone which is a pig pheromone and uh, People can smell it, and to some people it's very unpleasant because it smells like urine. And to other people it's very unpleasant because it smells like body odor. To other people it's pleasant because they think, oh, this is floral, and other people find it woody. So there's a completely different perception of the same molecule, of the same stimulus. And the reason for that is uh, manifold. So partly you've got a difference in genetics and receptor sensitivity, but also with age and uh, with acquaintance, with training, these perceptions change actually. So there's a lot of things going on where you can learn a lot about our biology and how we get access to the world and how that is shaped by biology. And it's not just, uh, smell is not just chemistry. It really is how biology perceives chemistry. And that's the most interesting thing because it's, uh, it opens up new questions. It opens up uh, new challenges, of course, because you have uh, similar things also with the other senses, but they might not be as uh, prominently expressed. And so we've known for a while, It's I think it's pretty phenomenologically common for all descriptions of scent to be referred to, you know, it being in the nose. It's sort of clear to us as um, possessors of a human body and a human experience that um, something uh, is happening in our nose, um, you know, and our, and our brains are telling us that that's where, where our smells are. Um, and so if, I, if I'm not wrong, there's some really interesting um, anatomical experiments that happen on horse heads um, that are kind of artificially animated in the 1800s to help just kind of nail down a little bit about what it's happening with kind of these mucous membranes in the, in the, in the nose. Um, but it's not until literally the 90s that we actually locate receptors um, for smell. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of some of these early experiments to isolate what it is that's happening in the nose that, that, that allows us to smell? And then um, this kind of monumental, maybe singular discovery um, by uh, Buck and Axel? Absolutely. So the experiment you mentioned is one of my favorite experiments. And uh, there is this beautiful illustration of it too. So it was in uh, 1882 and uh, by Paulsen, um, a scientist who tried to find out, well, so it's 
sure, we, we perceive smells through the nose, but where? Like, is it the entire nose? Is it part of the nose? Is there a certain localized thing? And what he did is first to start actually with, uh, with a corpse. So, well, again, more or less readily, uh, uh, well, available substance at the time. And it sounds a bit gruesome. But he cut it into half and plastered the epithelium with uh, little litmus strips. And then he inserted an artificial breathing apparatus, so a metal tube and a pig bladder, closed it together and then sprinkled some ammonia into the air. And uh, then when he reopened the head, he saw where the ammonia discolored the litmus paper. And he could trace the airflow, which is super interesting. And he saw, well, it all kind of came together. It all was gathering at the nasal epithelium on the top of your nose, so close to closer to your brain. And realizing, okay, there's definitely an airflow. It influences the stream of, uh, of, of particles that are reaching your nose and where they actually uh, are going to be detected then. But uh, it wasn't quite clear, of course, well, okay, there's the mucus and somehow odors seem to interact with that mucus. But what does that mean? Are there, like, do they actually enter the mucus? Do they dissolve? Do they drill themselves into the mucus? Or are there actually some things like receptors? I mean, receptors are uh, an idea that began in uh, uh, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century uh, by people like La uh, Langley. Um, but they were only becoming a reality really throughout uh, the second half of the 20th century, mainly when people discovered, for instance, visual rhodopsin. But the olfactory receptors much, much later, namely uh, throughout the 1980s. Like we're, we're, we're talking now 100 years later, throughout the 1980s, uh, people realized that the signals and the, the, the signaling pathway in olfaction is similar enough to many other sensory pathways such as vision. And in 1991, I mean, this is like really, really recent history. These receptors that, okay, there are actually receptors with which these chemicals are interacting and through which they're communicating their signals from chemistry to electrical signals in the brain. Were discovered in 1991 by Linda Buck and Richard Axel, uh, who, who really catapulted olfaction into mainstream science with that discovery because they didn't just discover these receptors, okay? So there's an interaction between chemistry and biology through receptors. No, it was even cooler uh, because they discovered a family of uh, receptors that was part of the biggest protein gene family in most mammalian, mammalian genomes. I say most because dolphins are an exception. But, uh, but the, they basically have... Um, the human genome has a dedicated space of 4% to just olfactory receptor genes. That's more than the immune system. That's massive. And um, it turns out that these uh, proteins are really part of most fundamental biological processes, not just vision and olfaction, but also regulation of immune responses, detection of neurotransmitters, lots of different things. So you certainly have this large family, the largest family within this big family, that is an ideal model system to study uh, the binding reactions between proteins and substances binding to proteins. You've got a model system in itself and one that is uh, actually pharmacologically very important. So 50% of drug studies target these proteins. So this was certainly a molecular goldmine, so to speak, and olfaction turned from this little system, which a couple of eccentric scientists who had passion for it to study it towards, oh, wow, this is like where new funding should be thrown in. This is massive. This is huge. And just for comparison, I mean, when, when I talk about these receptors and the biggest, the, the size of this family, prior to Buck and Axel, people thought, well, you know, given all these different molecules we can smell, we should have about maybe 
30, maybe 50 different receptors. The biggest family back then was serotonin with uh, by now like 15 receptor types. Turns out, uh, actually, humans have over 400 and mice have 1,000 and the like elephants have almost 2,000. So this family is massive. And that is basically where, where people realize, like, hang on a second, we overlooked something fundamental here. There's so many places I want to take that. I guess one is... Um... So there's this idea of an umwelt or a sensory world that different animals have. And so, um, I don't know, I remember being really struck with folks like Alexandra Horowitz, who works on how dogs experience the world through smell and how a lot of their apprehension of time, of sociality, um, you know, we, we, I mean, like we, we can never say what it's like to be a dog or it's like to be a bat for us, but we can maybe think a little bit about how important smell is to, you know, a, a mouse or a dog or these other, these other mammals. Um, but what this discovery showed is that it's actually, at least if you know this genetic proportion is to be taken seriously, that olfaction is hugely important to the human experience of the world, not just for you know the, the flavor referral, our ability to taste anything beyond you know these handful of flavors, but just for our ability to exist. There was I forget what lecture it was, and it was probably somewhere in my lab, um, or maybe it was a. Um, uh, my previous advisor, Barbara Finley, who kind of explained this to me, but it was that um, that chemo sensation um, isn't just... So for humans, we might think of these receptors, like you were mentioning, just for chemo sensation as just for smell. But actually, if you think about what chemo sensation was, it, it's the first way of apprehending your environment for organisms. It's their ability to figure out where they are in space based on chemical gradients. Um, that fish's sense of you know where they are in space isn't just through something like you know, mechanoreception, like feeling vibrations in water or through vision, it's dark down there, their eyes aren't that well formed. It's largely chemosensation. Um, so the, the ability for, you know, you don't understand what the kind of molecular profile is around you. Um, but it took until 91 for us to really nail down this, this, this finding. So can you tell us a little bit about what this allows us to see um, and what sort of experiments were possible af after this finding that kind of merited the Nobel Prize being given to to this duo, you know, 20 years later, which is pretty... Er, well, almost 30 years, yeah. Yeah, 20 years. It's, it's amazing. 30 years, it? yeah, which is pretty, still pretty quick in Nobel, yeah. in Nobel time. Uh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, they got the, they got the Nobel thing 15... Uh, no, wait, two, they got it 2004, so they got it 13 years later, but we're now actually almost with our 30-year anniversary of the discovery, which is so cool, because uh, it's such a recent history. But I should I should say, perhaps, like this is not simply where the, the neuroscientific study of smell started, because there were already a couple of uh, few, but a couple of really... Um, good studies beforehand. Um, it started actually with none other than Ramon Cajal, who, who was the one saying, well, actually, smell is the ideal model system to understand how we perceive the world in our brain, because you basically have uh, from the air to the brain, it's two synapses. That doesn't even get you out of the retina in vision. But uh, functional studies started much later, or not much later, a couple of decades later, um, with Sir Edgar Adrian, who looked at the bulb, for instance, to what extent there is a 
uh, a patterned response to odorants. And that was picked up by Gordon Shepard, um, who uh, many neuroscientists, of course, know, especially also from, from their entry to neuroscience, like the synaptic organization of the brain is a classic book. And uh, he looked at how the bulbs, so which is a little neurostructure at the frontal lobe of your brain, like right uh, above the olfactory uh, 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 epithelium. And this is where he realized, oh, there's actually a patterned response. There's like a fingerprint to specific odors in the brain. But you didn't know how that was connected to the stimulus. And what these receptor discovery now allowed was targeted access between the chemicals and whatever it is that the brain is processing and how it's processing. This is basically, I hate the lock and key analogy, but it was the key to the brain, so to speak. It was a way to really show like, well, how is it actually filtered and reorganized? Because we already know from vision that we're not having a unfiltered direct access. We're having some computation already at the retina. To what extent is the information pre-structured? Like if we think of uh, Ledvin, Pitts, and these kind of studies at the end of the 1950s. This is basically what uh, now this receptor discovery in olfaction allowed. How does actually really, how do the receptors respond to these chemicals? And what kind of information is further relayed to the brain? And it turns out we're still figuring that one out, but a couple of fundamental discoveries have been made. The first discovery was that it's not just simply, oh, one receptor, one molecule, but you have a combinatorial explosion. So meaning you've got one receptor detecting different molecules and different parts of different molecules, and one molecule can be detected by different receptors. That's the reason why you can um, perceive so many different smells and why the number of smells, I mean, there's one study uh, calculating this is up to one trillion of different stimuli, which is a pretty big number, I would say. And uh, But beyond that combinatorics and just the possible explosion of possibilities, also explaining why new synthetics in the lab are perceived immediately. I mean, perfumery wouldn't be a good business if you had to evolve receptors after they created something new. I mean, nothing would sell. Uh, but also there was a recent study and uh, that came out actually, I think a month ago. And uh, it's in the book because I was in the lab while they were doing that study. And I was hoping it would finally get out. And it's also described there because not just is it combinatorial, but uh, there was a psychological effect that long um, was considered to be an emergent property or something not taken serious enough, but at least a well-known phenomenon, namely that mixtures do, do not behave additively. So you put individual molecules in, but the mixture might smell completely different. So the whole really is more than the sum of its parts, so to speak, to bring up that uh, trope. Turns out there is a mechanism for that. And it's not just combinatorial, it's allosteric, meaning if you have a protein, it doesn't just respond to a chemical, but sometimes if you've got different chemicals in a mixture together, they're different binding sites. And some odorants, some chemicals bind to this so-called allosteric binding site, changing the conformation of the protein so that it suddenly can detect completely different molecules it didn't respond to earlier. So you basically have some cells, some uh, uh, receptor cells that suddenly respond to some molecules if these molecules are in combination with others, but they wouldn't respond to them individually which is amazing, actually. So this is a molecular mechanism for many things that previously we thought are some quirks of psychology. So this allows us basically to bring biology uh, and psychology together. And so this 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 finding um, that olfactory receptors behave allosterically, it really is kind of the, 
it should be a death knell for anybody that's teaching reception through lock and key. But but because that's the way we're often taught it, you know, in, in, in secondary school, we learn that, you know, um, we have these receptors all over the body, they exist in these cell walls, and they can hug and, you know, some incoming uh, molecule, they hug it really tightly, and they they tell the cell that, 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 that they're hugging the thing. But what you're saying here is, you know, um, A, the configuration of these binding sites changes, um, and it's, you know, you can basically, th there are innumerable ways in which this could be stimulated, most likely, um, and that it's complexly combinatorial such that, you know, hugging doesn't really work. It really is much more like a complex social interaction um, between all of these different cells. Um, and I love that metaphor. I love that metaphor. Um, yeah, I, I think somebody was explaining the immune system to me and they're like, don't think about it like hugging. Think about it like somebody could tap you on the back of the leg and you'd know what was going on for some of these cells or, you know, they can change configuration. And not to anthropomorphize these olfactory receptors too much. But this also brings up a, a really interesting question that um, so smell is complicated because for one, the concentration of things changes in really complex ways. We know what um, the smell of a uh, lemon pledge is and the smell of a lemon. And we could smell somebody in the next room that's wearing, you know, some sort of like lemon flavored deodorant or something. Um, and all of this somehow we would make sense of even as each of these uh, um, substances is chemically different. It's different, um, you know, in terms of uh, the psychological state and what we're predicting is when we smell them. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of these uh, different challenges that olfaction brings up that scientists all over the world study that aren't, you know, really as present when we think, you know, when we take vision to be um, our template for sensation? Uh, so this is where I like to always say, like, well, smell is more than just the chemistry. Like, there's so much going on. And in a way, I have to apologize to any vision scientist uh, listening, because I do like to trivialize the visual system just a little bit to, to make my point. And I know, of course, vision is complex, color is complex, lots of stuff going on. The point being, smell is much more complex. So if you like that complexity of vision, you'll be amazed by smell. For example, like in, in vision, there might be the idea that we can adjust for different luminosities. So if you're inside right now and you turn your eyes to a wall that's illuminated in different ways, the color of the paint on that wall looks constant, even though when you actually look at it, the corners of it are different than the part where the light hits than the part where there's shade. But your brain can still do a computation where it can discount the amount of luminance that's hitting it and you see it as one unified kind of structure. But in contrast for olfaction, there's so much more going on. Indeed. No, no, absolutely. Um, uh, so basically with vision, um, you've got a low dimensional stimulus where you've got uh, electromagnetic wavelength in the visible spectrum and the receptors carve it up into their different pieces. And then you can compute further colors based on that. So this is why I like to say, well, if you've got something like uh, for instance, pink, which is white light minus green, but it's an additive reaction. It's a computational, it's a beautiful thing. But with smell, you don't have that. You can't say, well, you add, let's say, the carbon atom here and cherry turns into lemon or something like that. It doesn't work that way because you don't have a low dimensional stimulus. You have a high dimensional stimulus, meaning each molecule has about 5,000 different parameters by which it is detected 
uh, by the receptors. 5,000, that's just one molecule. And then you have most of the smells you're smelling, such as coffee, for instance, is uh, about 800 molecules. So you've got really a, a big data problem of your nose when it comes to when it comes to smelling. And when it comes to how the brain makes sense of all that kind of smorgasbord of information. And you have not just the, the shape, the stereochemistry of a molecule, but you have its molecular weight, you have its, uh, to what extent is it hydrophobic, so uh, uh, rejecting water, uh, and lots of things. Are there certain atom groups, such as sulfur? Are there certain, um, are, are these atoms grouped in a particular position of the molecules? All these kind of things. There's so much going on. And um, this is where, if you've got, for instance, you might say, well, but still, you've got the structure for the molecules. But even that is a very trivializing uh, statement because it's not that you have molecules of the same structure having the same smell. You actually have both. You have some molecules where you've got similar enough structure and they have a similar enough smell. But you also have the absolute opposite. So you have sometimes molecules called isosteric molecules, which have a really, really similar structure, but completely different smells. So you can have that. Or you can have some molecules which have similar smells, but a completely unrelated molecular structure. My favorite example is musk molecules, because musk molecules are very popular in perfumery. They're well studied. And you have uh, you have some which are a chain, some which are a bicyclical compound. They have nothing in common when it comes to common commonality. They would say, if you have this feature, therefore it's that smell. So it's not like you have this wavelength and you've got this color or this kind of computation of, of wavelengths uh, and this color. That's not how smell works. Uh, there is no intuitive way to model the chemistry to link it with a perceptual space uh, in, in a way that we have with vision. And that makes it, of course, very fascinating because that is where the biology comes in. What is it that the receptors are detecting here? And then there's the question of, um, you know, when you see typically, um, you know, obviously it's more it's much more complicated than you see a 3D world around you. Actually, um, when, when you see that there's a there's a point of acuity, everything else is largely simulated or predicted, kind of reconstructed by your brain on the fly. Um, but more or less, I kind of experience the world as, uh, you know, a series of objects around me. There are no, um, you know, when I cast my eyes towards it, there are no holes. Um, everything's pretty much there. Um, but when you're smelling, um, that kind of uh, orientation of the world isn't really present in the stimulus, at least for us, maybe, I don't know, for, for dogs, they might be able to do differential smell from different nostrils a little bit. There's some kind of stereo olfaction going on there. But for humans, it's, you know, it's completely, at least for me, um, and after I read this book, I understand it a little more, but it was it was unclear to me how you might know if you're smelling one object or three, how you might be able to refer the smell to an object that's in the room as opposed to one that's in your head or in the, in the next room over. Um, there are all sorts of these other complex questions about kind of space and ontology of odorants. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people began to approach this? Um, absolutely. So the nice difference between smell and vision is that vision is perspective invariant. So if I walk around my desk, no matter from what angle I'm walking, it's a desk. It will not suddenly turn into a chair or into a plant or what have you. But if I spritz an odor at you, and depending on whether I shout that's parmesan or that's vomit, you'll get a different mental image in your head. And that's not a trick. It's basically that the molecules can be part of different molecular clouds and be emanated from different objects. So you have literally a promiscuous stimulus. You've got the same molecules 
occurring in different circumstances. So uh, one of my favorite examples, I'm, I'm afraid to say so, is really indole, which uh, indole is a chemical that has a strong feces smell. It smells like shit, literally. And th- 3% of your coffee smell of indole. Uh, so there's 3% of indole in your coffee. So I just ruined that part for you. Um you don't smell it in the composition. This is why I mean like the whole is more than the sum of its parts. But uh, the point here being basically you can have the same molecules in completely unrelated uh, or coming from completely unrelated objects. Like parmesan and vomit both have butyric acid. So it's not a trick if I, if I just uh, shout like a word at you and you get a different mental image. It's basically your brain associating with a previous experience. And this is what I meant with, it's so important, smell is such a nice uh, example to really to study cognitive effects in perception, uh, both when it comes to verbal or cross-modal cues. So smell is not perspective invariant. Smell is highly contextual. Smell is um, associated with a lot of surroundings. It's really a measure of context and a measure of a situation. So it has a different function. Vision is there really to stabilize things. Although I gotta be honest, I think what we often underestimate when we talk about vision is to what extent also vision is much more motion perception than stable object perception. Uh, when it comes to peripheral attention, all these kind of things, there, there's lots of stuff going on also in vision. And uh, But with smell, it's really mainly a measure of changes in the environment and a measure of perspective. So the variation really is what the sense of smell evolved to do, because the same molecule in different contexts will mean something different. And this can often be used to quite dramatic effect. So um, I think I remember... Uh, I think this was uh, Jonah Lehrer's book in Proust was a neuroscientist. There's a story about, I think, a Russian man on the back of a train who becomes increasingly convinced that there's a um, a dead body in a bunch of uh, bushels near him. And he kind of in his stupor um, convinces himself that he killed somebody. He's about to get prosecuted. So he jumps off of the train and it turns out it's just, you know, a bunch of onions that might be rotting or something like that. Um can you talk about how dramatically this kind of top-down um, prediction about what context you're in for a particular odor, how that can make us maybe misapprehend um, an odorant um, and the, the work people do on things like that? So I would I would say not even misapprehend, but categorize it in a way that... Uh that can lead to a mental image not necessarily matching up with the source. This is the most important part with smell and why it puzzled people so much. Because when we try to analyze what a smell is, you really have uh, three things you can analyze. You've got the visual source from which uh, molecules are emanating, whether it's a cup of coffee or whether it's a perfume. Uh, you've got the molecular cloud uh, with the odorants, with the chemicals, and then you've got your mental object. But you can have the same mental object coming from a different uh, source object, like macro objects. Um, you can have, for instance, you can have something that smells like a rose and it's an actual rose, but you can also have just an oil or you can have a perfume that smells of rose. And then you've got the molecules, which also need to be uh, need not to be identical. And then you've got the mental image. So it depends always what you what you mean by that. So there can be a mismatch between what you see and what you perceive. And if you give people things to smell blindly, 
uh, they will possibly have completely different associations than if you give them something to smell with a visual object. That was already studied at the beginning of the 20th century by Hans Henning, uh, a German psychologist, who showed that there's a difference between the given odor and the when you just have an odor you smell without a visual object, and uh, if you have a visible source with your object. The, the descriptions will change because there's a lot of association. And you can also train that at home. So you bought whatever is in, in your fridge, but um, if you had somebody blindfold you and give you things to smell, you would actually sometimes struggle a little, little bit to say what it is. And uh, this is often seen, oh, yeah, this is why smell can't tell us about the world. No, it's just that, A, uh, we haven't learned. I mean, a perfumer, a trained expert could immediately tell you what it is. We just haven't learned to track smells consciously. So with visual objects, they will always be, if they, if they go by, uh, in your visual awareness. With smells, they pop in and out of consciousness. And that's what makes it so hard for us to... A, uh, compare them if we don't pay attention, if we don't learn how to do that. Um, and B, uh, to, to memorize them because we're not paying attention. We're not com uh, comparing them intentionally. So you can trick people, of course, if you want to use that word, by uh, by giving them a smell. Uh, and if they don't know what it is, they might come up with a complete different mental image, uh, such as, for instance, the dead body and the onions. Um, but there, there are many of these things. But if you had somebody like a perfumer who who learned, uh, for instance, the, the origin of many chemicals and how they smell, they would be less easy to trick. And so this calls to mind the fact that smell is often something that we can train as a skill of perception. Um, so you talk about this kind of long history of perfumery. Um, you mentioned these kind of perfume houses that have been around for the better part of a millennia um, and that have been, you know, um, producing, uh, you know, presumably, you know, sensed by a relatively conserved process or with some, you know, relatively conserved kind of ethos. Um, I guess I'm wondering, um, as this kind of aesthetic attention to smell is developing, even as plenty of anatomical or medical attention to it is lacking, um, what sorts of categorizations and understandings are people producing um, that have to deal with smell in the course of their business, you know, whether they're beautifying um, the world or they're kind of purveying some sort of perfume to somebody in Europe? Um, what are they what are they learning about all the different varieties of of smell and what it is that they can make oh a lot of things so this is why I hope, and, and the nice thing is some people are already doing that, that there will be a better integration of uh, perfumery and neuroscience because neuroscience, they, they like to study the circuits, uh, but perfumers are also sommeliers. They are really interacting with the materials and they knew about a lot of effects that now are being taken more seriously by both neuroscience and psychology. So what we can learn from perfumers is, for instance, to what extent we need to understand uh, partly the material dimension of smell and partly the perceptual dimension. So um, I mentioned a couple of times to what extent the whole is more than the sum of its parts. When it comes to mixture perception, certain effects and the seeming unpredictability of perceptual effects from materials. So what kind of combinations will give rise to something completely else? But the other thing is really that uh, a difference between or something very peculiar to smell, which perfumers know, but it sounds often... Um, counterintuitive to us, is actually uh, that you have more than one smell associated with a molecule. 
So if you've got an odorant, you, like if you've got color, you see blue, you don't see red and you don't see yellow. But if you've got a molecule, um, you often have more than one smell associated with it. Uh, if you've got cis-3 hexanol, which is like fresh cut green grass, there's also something leafy, something earthy. There are different things in there. Or you've got some molecules where it has a musk odor, but also a floral odor. So completely unrelated. It's as if you had in the same color, both, let's say, purple and yellow in the same kind of wavelength. This for, for vision makes no sense. In olfaction, you really have the kind of Walt Whitman saying, uh, I contain multitudes. And that makes it, of course, very interesting to study both from a mental perspective as well as from a how does the brain actually allocate then these different signals so that we can actually shift our perception. So bring it back to your earlier question. This is why you can seemingly trick somebody depending on what you say, like I spritz an odor at you and I give you a word and you have a different mental image because there is more than one quality to a smell. So the same smell can really feel or ex be experienced differently depending on what attention uh, your brain is paying to when it comes to what kind of part of the signal. Because there's more than one thing in it already. And it seems like um, the description of this maybe uh, notes takes advantage of the idea that we can hear sounds in different combinations, that there are different frequency ranges. We can perceive a chord um, as having part of it being in the bass spectrum, part of it being, you know, in this kind of middle uh, uh, range, and then part of it being really high frequency. Um, and it seems like perfumers for, you know, the better part of hundreds and hundreds of years have been able to segment this into a trajectory. There's a heart note, a top note. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I'm just wondering um, if this is something that sommeliers appropriate when they think about taste, which we know is so related to smell. Uh, so there's a, there's a story each perfume tells, but that's actually a modern feature of perfume. So we know perfume today as having this threefold uh, composition of the top note, which is the first couple of seconds and minutes. Then you've got the heart note, which is the next couple of hours. And then you've got the base note, the stuff with a good perfume, which can last uh, 24 hours, sometimes longer on your skin. And the reason for that, that you can tell this long story, is because perfumers break up a mixture with alcohol. But the introduction to alcohol into perfume was in the 14th century, early 14th century. Previously, perfumes were oils. Like if you think of ancient Egyptian perfume, you had some rosemary and myrrh combined in an oil, but it was the same smell. And alcohol allows you to break up the mixture and to release the molecules at different times, depending on their weight, so to speak. So this is when you go, for instance, to a perfumery store. I mean, um, and you, you have these smelling strips and you smell them. The first couple of seconds, they blow your mind and then they, it changes. And you think, oh, well, hang on a second. How can that be? Actually, for two reasons. One thing is because different molecules are released and partly also because your receptors adapt to the smells you already know. So you've got literally two things going on, biology and chemistry. And that's why I always recommend don't smell a perfume on your smelling strip, but put it on your skin because uh Every molecule, like every perfume smells also different on your skin for the simple reasons that you have a body temperature. So the, re like the, the release of molecules will be different than on your smelling strip. You've got your own body odor. So you've got a mixture of the, the kind of smells of your perfume and yourself. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Why don't use a smelling strip? I'm getting mental if I see people going like, mm -hmm, or worse, smelling the bloody bottle. I mean, why would you do that? You're not going to smell much. Uh, you get you get a very, very condensed, weird uh, smell of it. You're not going to know whether you like it or not. 
anyway, that runs aside. Um, perfumery, when it comes to these kind of different notes, perfumers do two things. One thing is they learn individual scents as kind of benchmark sm smells, and they learn about 1,500 to 2,000 smells as kind of a library catalog. So if they smell a perfume and they go like, oh, yeah, that's linalool, linalool, or that's, uh, I don't know, this, this molecule they memorized it. This is why it takes so long to become a perfumer. This is an extreme cognitive effort. The other thing they're learning is what combination of smells create another smell. So quite often they can identify the components not by, oh, I know this is in there, but more like, oh, wait a second, I know that combination. And uh, this is, they, they really build kind of a perceptual library, a material perceptual library. And with winemakers, it's a bit different. So they are similar in the sense that they learn to identify individual components and they learn to memorize a library of potential combinations. But uh, sommeliers don't build perfumes. They smell a finished mixture and have to break it down, while perfumers often put different things together into a complex mixtures. So something different going on when it comes to material analysis. And uh, a sommelier also does things which uh, a perfumer can't do. So if you just shake a perfume or you, you look at its color, you might not know necessarily what's in there. With a wine, you will. So there's this beautiful scene in uh, the documentary Somme, um, which is, I think, also on Netflix. And I really recommend that one. And there's this one scene which uh, was recommended to me years and years ago by a good friend of mine who's also in the book, Terry Acri, uh, who's an who's a expert on Riesling and just a fabulous mind. And he said, well, look, Watch, watch that scene. And it's like one minute and 10 seconds and the guy speaks faster than I do, I should, I should warn you. And he kind of goes through the whole procedure of identifying a wine in a minute. And you, you think, he spouts out all these words, like, oh, there's rubber hose and then there's this. And you think, he can't possibly all smell that. Like, it's wine, for heaven's sake. When you hear perfumers saying all these things, that's what got me into the wine part. Because like, well, something is going on here I clearly don't understand. And it turns out, no, well, there is something very, very, it's like deductive smelling. So when they first hold the glass at a 45 degree angle, what they're doing really is they're already building up, they're already forming a hypothesis. Namely, okay, what's the light uh, refraction at, at, at the surface? Is there an oily film? What kind of color does it have? That already gives you an idea of what kind of wine it might be. So you have a number of different hypotheses. And mind you, these guys have a mental library of different wines they tasted before, where they kind of have a profile in their head. Then he smells it and he swells the wine and smells it. And this wine swelling is actually not some posh move of, you know, I'm a, I'm a wine expert, but you basically increase the surface of the wine. You get a broader bouquet of what's coming up in terms of uh, molecules of different molecular weights coming uh, from, like being released from the surface. So you get a broader bouquet and you can get certain notes and certain wines have more prominent notes. So you refine your hypothesis. And at some point uh, you see him breaking down all these kind of different notes and they learned how to, how to do that. So you can even do that at home. Um, if you've got a wine, look at the description of it and then buy certain, you get these wine aroma wheels uh, originally developed by uh, Anne Noble uh, in 1984, I think. And um, she was so popular also because she, uh, told you what to buy from a supermarket and to really let's say you buy uh, a couple of different ingredients and then you learn how to identify them in the wine so you smell them and you smell them in combination with the wine and you learn you have to do it repeatedly uh, how to identify chocolate in a wine blackberry in a wine cherry in a wine vanilla in a wine and i started learning that myself and it actually works you enhance your perception so many of the things we think uh, these are just showing how 
how suggest uh, such like how much a sense of smell is subject to um, potential bias. No, 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 no. It's much more that you can broaden your consciousness. Actually, so you know that when you have a wine and somebody says, "Oh, do you smell the vanilla note?" Suddenly, it's there. Like from from zero to to one hundred, suddenly it's there. You haven't smelled it before. Now it's there, and you can't even smell anything else besides the vanilla. And that's not some weird effect. That's really to what extent you can point your consciousness, like a sniffer dog, to certain elements in the wine. And that's where, again, I think we can learn in terms of neuroscience, in terms of philosophy and psychology, a lot also from perfumers and winemakers, because they've been studying that for for decades, for years, for centuries actually, uh, and a lot of effects that look strange such as for instance that you suddenly can discover a note that you haven't smelled before and now it's there in your consciousness tells us something about consciousness so why not study that a bit more it's not just vision it's also olfaction can you tell us a little bit more about that um what this tells us about the philosophy of of consciousness and um how this suggestibility or maybe we could call it you know a top-down effect or something how what this might tell us about how perception works and how perception can be, you know, either self-trained or trained, you know, in kind of social collaboration with somebody that, um, you know, themselves has kind of dedicated time to refining their, their sense of smell. Absolutely. So this is where I'm so surprised. Hmm? Oh, so, and I would just, I would just mention really quickly. And so part of what this is making me think of is that sense of smell isn't just about smell in large part. Right, like it's not when I when I say refining their sense of smell, it's refining um, their sense of smell plus their understanding of context, their understanding of you know their own their own experience. It's much more than just you know being able to call their attention to you know some emergent feeling of binding. I love that you're saying that because we often just like to carve out the senses as these separate systems. But they're not. The sense of smell gives you information not just about the smell of things, but uh, the smell of things as something. So I remember when I was at a talk where um, a medical researcher was talking about people who lost their sense of smell. Because one way to study, for instance, what smell is, what it tells us and what it tells about the mind and consciousness is also to look at people who have lost it. So what do you actually lose when you lose your sense of smell? And a couple of people were saying something very interesting that stuck with me. Namely, as if you were cut off from the world, as if some texture of reality was missing, as if they were behind the glass wall. Because you're not just, you might just only be smelling consciously uh, certain things when they when they pop into your consciousness, but that doesn't mean you're not somehow registering certain things. And I like the expression, it's somehow at the backseat of your consciousness, which uh, the philosopher Barry Smith was was, was using. And in a way, when you're going for a holiday, there is an atmosphere to a place. There is a, a place might feel kind of fresh or narcotic or something. This has to do with your chemical sense of smell because you're, it's, it's if your, your nose is touching the molecular surroundings. It might not always be a conscious feeling or a conscious expression as a smell, but it certainly is there. So there's something going on. There are also many things that are processed below the threshold of consciousness that still affect our decision. And my favorite example here is partner choice. We like to think like we, we choose our partner because we've got some romantic connection and some, you know, wit and charm and intelligence and yada, 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 and personality and all that stuff. It, lots of it is actually purely physical. Uh, one has to be honest. And um, there, there have been a couple of really interesting studies, which blew my mind, uh, that 
women actually, if they smell the body odor of men, for instance, from, from T-shirts, if, if uh, men sweat into them, um, they preferred the, uh, the T-shirts of, of men with a complementary immune system. And the people who then switched, to, like people, actually women on the pill, preferred the T-shirts of men with a similar immune system. So when do actually most divorce rates happen? Short, shortly after, after people married, change their contraception routine because they want to get kids and the woman is off the pill. So the love of your life can really lose sex appeal when, when, yeah, uh, with smells. So that was, that was quite interesting. But there are many things in terms of you're not consciously necessarily processing that. But um, there's, there's a lot of things where, where smell signals something uh, in a social context or in an environmental context, it's just not always conscious. And this is where we can think a bit more in terms of how do we do decisions based on what do we do decisions. And it's not actually irrational. So I think this is why many philosophers long neglected smell, because it looks so irrational. And it either looks like, oh, this is just part of the animal kingdom, rather than, you know, the high rational idea of the enlightenment. And the, the cue is in the name enlightenment in terms of vision. This is where vision came, came to the fore again. Um, and smell doesn't seem to be based on some principled categories of reason, but that is actually the wrong way to think about that. There is a reason that is a sort of biological rationality, because there's a reason, for instance, why there might be a need for attraction to a complementary immune system, all these kind of things. And just because it's biologically based doesn't mean it's irrational. And uh, it just challenges our notion of rationality that's built on a pre-scientific understanding of decision-making in humans. Uh, so this is where, where smell, for instance, can help us. And when it comes to consciousness, um, lots of these studies are based on visual awareness. And vision, of course, is interesting because it seems to be, I mean, it's also very deceptive because it's not that you, you, what you see is what you get. There's lots of things going on in our visual consciousness that are, that are for, uh, in our visual perception that are not registered, change blindness, these kind of things. But uh, with smell, it's even more interesting because it can literally pop in and out of your consciousness, partly based on, again, biology, like your receptors habituate to smells, and partly based on cognitive uh, uh, access or bias, for instance, that I can tell you something and suddenly your mind switches to something and you can really enhance your experience of the world by by learning you can learn to identify uh, lots of things within a mixture but you wouldn't suddenly like this is the difference to vision you see a painting you don't suddenly perceiving new colors but in wine for instance you can perceive new qualities that you haven't smelled before and this is i think why we need to study also smell, A, to what extent do we get access to the physical world? To what extent do different senses provide us with different forms of access? Uh, I think it enhances just our gen general understanding of perception. I think there's one kind of gift of the language of perception that calls attention to this. So um, when we talk about the optics of something, that something looks wrong, we're talking about a kind of surface disjointed, um, some sort of something that's not consonant. Um, when something looks off, that's an immediate feeling. You immediately look something and something is off here when we're talking about a social situation about somebody's social performance. But when we say, um, you know, something smells a bit wrong here, I need to give this the sniff test or, um, you know, that feeling of something being off refers to something that feels much deeper when people talk about it. When you say that, you know, somebody, you know, it looked wrong when somebody, you know, told you about something after it happened and you, you didn't trust them versus something smelled off. It's a completely different um, way that you're crediting 
what was weird about that situation, where I think the olfactory metaphor indicates some sort of deeper discomfort, some sort of kind of closer to your core um, disturbance or, or feeling of, of something being off. Um, and I think that, you know, probably most neuroscientists um, have been taught that, you know, smell is the one of the five senses that bypasses the lamic relay. It's the most ancient sense. Um, and, uh, you know, I think most of us are also taught that, you know, the histocompatibility stuff that you're mentioning with the t-shirts that while, you know, humans don't have a vemoronasal organ, we don't really, I don't think, smell pheromones. Um, we still definitely use smell as a social cue. That there is something deep and conserved and important about what smell does for us. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about kind of the way that this, the, the neuroanatomy of olfaction might tie into theories about why it is, for example, you know, there's the, there's the Proust example, Proust, right, about the, the teacup and flavor, um, that smell is so affective, that it has so much to do with how fast we're breathing and how much we're breathing through our nose, which has so much to do with how our autonomic nervous system is acting. Um, can you, can you explore that a little? I love that you're bringing that up because there's so much going on in what you just said. So the first thing is um, the fact that we associate smell with something in our unconscious perception with something deeper. Like it gives us something about the essence of things that vision otherwise covers up. I mean, you're, you're not checking the milk by its, its uh, appearance, you're smelling it. Or it, no matter how nice a food would look like, if you don't like the smell, if there's something off about the smell, you're not eating it. So it gives you a much deeper understanding of materiality. It is a signal of what something really is. The other thing you mentioned is the neuroanatomy, as you said, like, well, the, the kind of often referred to, well, smell is the only sense that is not directly processed through the thalamus, uh, unlike vision, unlike audition. And that's where uh, many people say, oh, this is why it's so directly linked to, for instance, emotion and all these kind of things. And it's a popular way of saying that. And it's a popular way of phrasing it like that. But I'm not so convinced by it. It's one of those things that you're being told all the time and I think it's time to say hang on a second is that actually true or what does it really mean because too often we rely on truisms which have been told in textbooks and nobody checked up on them and smell is a good example and you brought up Proust in that context and this is a good example so um because first of all, what do I mean by not having any uh, uh, thalamus relay, so to speak? It's really when you when you smell, I already mentioned you've got the molecules interacting with the receptors in your nose, then you've got the first brain station, which is the olfactory bulb at the frontal lobe in your brain, and then it goes straight forward right into the cortex. And from there too, you've got a connection to the amygdala, you've got a connection to what, where you've got effect. Uh, it's a very trivializing statement. Amygdala researchers are going to hate me for that. Uh, and you've got the orbital frontal cortex where there's decision making lots of stuff going on in terms of interconnectedness but there is no kind of intermediate relay like between uh, for instance the retina the thalamus and the visual cortex uh, or these kind of things so people thought well this is why we're so immediate when we're having a smell in terms of memory and emotions and uh, I often hear then, oh, yeah, Proust, you know, when we smell something, we've got this memory recall from our childhood. And uh, I often grin a little bit because uh, nobody seems to read Proust anymore. Because if you look at these two pages... Guilty as charged. <laughs> well, you're not the only one. And I, I got to admit, I was pointed uh, to that phenomenon by Avery Gilbert, who, uh, who's, a, who's also interviewed in the book, who's a sensory scientist, because he uh, said, like, well, look at Proust. Mm. 
he doesn't mention smell once. There is no descriptor of the bloody Madeleine uh, or, the, or the tea. Like, you don't know what it actually smells like. And also, this is not how we experience this kind of Proust effect. So he sits there, dipping the tea, uh, dipping the Madeleine into the tea, and sits there and contemplates, trying to consciously extract that memory he knew he has. Mm. When we're having the so-called Proust effect, we're having a smell and it's there immediately. Like you smell something and you're, oh, wow, that smells like my, my, my father's garage or something like that. So it's completely different, actually. So Proust is much more about the fact that we are sometimes using smells uh, as kind of a placeholder, a cognitive placeholder for certain social things. If I tell you about the smell of my grandmother's house, for instance, you've never smelled it. You will never smell the exact same comp- composition of molecules. But you know the social role it plays. So there's this, uh, there's that. And uh, when it comes to immediate recall, this is something I think will be very interesting if we can figure out why that is, how that is, and how that works. I mean, this is an open question. This is where we're starting to enter speculative territory. This is one of the big open questions. The holy grail of smell right now is really consciousness and memory. So there's big, big things to, to explore. But when it comes to, yes, but the emotional, the immediate emotional impact, hang on a second. So does music. If I hear a song which really caused me, like at a time where I broke up with somebody and was a big breakup and it was it hurts, I hear that song and it's there. So it's not just smell that has this immediate emotional impact when you hear something that is, so to speak, strongly associated with a memory event. I think the difference between smell and, for instance, emotional things like uh, like music is that you are there physically in that moment. This is the interesting thing about smell. It has a material component, a presence uh, that is not there with other forms of emotional effect on memory in many other senses or not as strong. Because if you smell something uh, from your childhood, it's almost as if you're there again. So if, if I smell certain food stuff, I'm almost transported back to my childhood. It's as if it's there. This is when the last thing you give away, for instance, when somebody dies, is their clothes. I remember the last thing I gave away from my father was his T-shirts because they still smelled of him as if he was still there. So there is a presence associated with smell, a material presence that no other sense conveys like that. That's what I think, again, uh, makes it so interesting also to study in terms of consciousness. Uh, because there is a there is a presence that is not like vision as a, as a distal sense where you've got the reflection of surface. You really have the molecules interacting with your nose, which of course I hate to say it is. Uh, next time you go to the toilet in a public toilet and somebody like it stinks, you're really literally smelling the shit of them. <laughs> it's in your nose. Yeah, I know. You're this breathing is why it I'm in. Often... Yeah. Oh yes, you're literally breathing in shitty molecules. It's 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 uh, yeah. Well, th- thankfully, we have pretty strong immune systems, and <laughs> yes. we can smell things even at very low concentrations that are very biologically relevant and conserved. Um, oh yes, be- because at a higher concentration, they could kill you. There's again a reason why why you have to be able to detect the most minute amounts because, depending on in what kind of combination they can they occur, they might really have a detrimental effect on on your body. And so this this brings up another aspect, I think, of the materiality um, and of uh, the media of smell, which I think that, um, you know, the, the kind of philosophy in, in the book is well equipped to, to talk about. So there's this idea that you just mentioned that, um, well, first of all, folks that want to quote uh, um, uh, 
in search of lost time should read in search of lost time um uh, (laughs) for sure uh i hear it's long so i'm a a little scared but if if ever now's the time um but there's there's also this idea that um there's a materiality to smell that means that when you're smelling something you're engaging with a real object in a you know kind of in this external context to your body that means you're likely to have a lot of other cues to whatever memory you're associating with it likely when you were handling right your your father's t-shirts you were in your closet or an interior part of your house somewhere where you've also thought a lot about your father um, where you have a lot of links to family when we smell a certain food we're likely you know there's likely been a reason that that food is present because it's culturally consonant to have that food around or because someone got it for us. So there are all these other kind of external things happening that when our brain decides to categorize that moment and to, you know, give us some sort of simulation of what we should be preparing for, it's preparing us for something we've had deep experience with in the past, not just because of the smell, but because of all these other cues. And that's not that the same for vision or for sound, because the media that we have allow us to experience sound and vision at a distance, right? We can simulate vision on a screen of basically anything anywhere in the world. We don't have to be remotely close to it. Sound we can listen to in our headphones anywhere in the world. We can you know, just because we hear the sound of somebody's voice doesn't mean they're actually that close. It can still give us that, you know, drop in the pit of our stomach that we then construct into a feeling of longing or nostalgia or melancholy. Um, But smell is so strong because of all the other things that are there. Well, this calls to mind, why can't we reproduce smell? And why can't we have a, a media of smell that isn't just describing it in terms of other senses, that isn't just sending small samples, but allows us to kind of combinatorially produce whatever odorant we want at a particular moment. Now, I know this is extraordinarily challenging, but it's been something that at least winemakers and perfumeries, uh, these perfume houses have been working on for a long time. What is some of the work that's being done in, in neuroscience to be able to produce smell in the same way we might be able to produce an image or produce a sound? Ooh, good question. So on the one hand, you can actually elicit the behavior associated with this smell, at least with, if you look at mice, I mean, kind of like on Twitter, like in mice. Uh, So I should make that kind of warning label in mice. Uh, So at least uh, there is a possibility, for instance, with optogenetics to train mice on smells and then to elicit uh, elicit the behavior associated with the smell without the odor just by activating uh, that neural population. So it is possible, actually. To what extent um, that really is comparable in terms of perception, as somebody who really thinks like this is like neurons are the perception, I would say, yes, it is that odor perception, but I know many philosophers will have an issue with that. Then again, I don't care. Um, so there is, there is definitely a way to, uh, in which, uh, you can't, you should be able to recreate a smell as an impression through the neural pattern and things like hallucinations. You do have olfactory hallucinations often, unfortunately, in the context of uh, a neurodegenerative disorder. So some smells have aura, like some disorders have aura, such as epilepsy. Uh, for instance, some people have a urinous uh, aura, like a smell beforehand. Uh, also other things like um, multiple sclerosis, some people have auras as well. So there's something going on here. And you certainly have some form of, people also have burned smells and things like that. So there is the possibility of having an experience of smell without the materiality, just in terms of if the neurons associated with certain or that are trained to respond to certain smells are activated. 
Definitely. So this is an interesting phenomenon. And there have been, uh, for instance, uh, by Richard Axel, uh, studies have been conducted in that in that context. There is, of course, also the question to what extent it's going to be a bit more complicated, but to what extent could you even have, let's say, a negative image of a smell by just reversing the proportion of neurons? And this is one of those interviews that unfortunately didn't make it into the book. But I had this beautiful conversation uh, years ago with Don Wilson, who is a neuroscientist at NYU. And he said, well, he, he would have loved to do this experiment, but unfortunately it never uh, turned out to be the, like, it, it couldn't, it couldn't happen because uh, funding, like funding issues, like smells hopelessly underfunded. But what if you have a certain smell? Could you do a negative image of it, so to speak? So, and I was kind of wondering to what extent, if you've got a smell like jasmine, like very complex, but again, 3% indole. If you reverse it, does it does, does the negative image of Jasmine just smell of shit? I mean, I I just wonder. I just wonder to what extent there might be some interesting experiments. But there's a lot of speculation on that end. That being said, at least there are some real experiments when it comes to, for instance, activating neurons and having really a smell effect in terms of behavior in mice. So can you just the negative image? So this is the idea that um at least in vision, there's a lot of oppositional activation. So um, I think some of us may have had the experience where we can stare at this uh, very complicated image of um, a flag that has these greens and whites and blacks, and we stare at it for a long time. And then, you know, you look at some sort of neutral, quote unquote, neutral surface like a wall, and all of a sudden there, boom, the American flag just popping up every time you blink. This is the idea that because, you know, um, our, our visual neurons are arrayed in such a way that they have lateral inhibition and kind of this oppositional action, um, and in the absence of a very strong stimulus after it's taken away, you'll actually experience the the other side of that of that opposition. Um, you know, you look at a waterfall for a long time, and then you look somewhere else and you see things flowing upwards. Um, you were saying that there are ideas that this might work in a similar way for for smell. Oh, no ideas that it might work. It was just a speculation I had uh, in a conversation with Don Wilson. Well, it was not my speculation. He brought it up. Um, and I liked the idea. I thought, like, ha, huh, it would be interesting to see whether it could, because there is lateral inhibition also in the olfactory system. So what would be, like, a comparable... Uh, it would. It doesn't need to be, and I don't think it would be exactly the same as the phenomenon in vision, but what would be a comparable effect and what else might be going on given all the complexity of smell that we talked about uh, so far like what 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 difference would would apply to smell to what extent you will also get some other perceptual effects you wouldn't get with vision i mean i think there are lots of things we still can ask with smell by just saying there is this phenomenon vision what would it look like in olfaction and might actually be a bit different and what to what extent might that even help us to understand these effects then also in vision? And you might even wonder to what extent to what extent you might be able to apply similar enough mechanisms to the senses we haven't talked about enough, uh, such as interoception. Is there anything relatable, uh, remotely uh, comparable to that? Who knows? I mean, uh, there's a lot of heuristics going on just to use this and say it doesn't have to be the same, but what possibilities come from that? What can we study with that? And I wonder to what extent you might have something like a an after image or a negative image uh, in smell, especially with smell mixtures. Does it reverse anything? Does it shift it in any any way? Uh, I I do wonder. I mean, this is pure speculation, but it's kind of interesting speculation. Yeah, and it would tell us a lot about the dimension, the dimensionality of smell. Like, what are the actual kind of 
chemical, you know, form, perceptual dimensions along which is this this is arranged. If you can find oppositions there um, that are pretty consistent, that you know, you probably interpret from the wiring of these different glomeruli, and um, you know, they're in kind of inhibitory ac activation of each other. Um, this could tell us about. You know, in in vision, we know that there's kind of color opposition, there's motion opposition, and this is you know after a lot of intense work, it's fairly you know easy to trace. You can teach this to an undergrad and show them a bunch of effects that that seem to hold. But for smell, um, it's very you know you you don't have anything close to that type of dimensional mapping that that you can that you can teach anatomically, as far as I understand. I know at the end of the 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 book, you quote. Um, uh, a, a new some new work by Margaret Livingstone that I was wondering if you could just bring into that a tiny bit. Oh, so this is uh this this study blew my mind a little bit. Uh, it came out fairly recently, end of uh, two thousand seventeen, and I heard of it a little bit before because she gave a talk at NYU, um, shortly beforehand. So this was for me the realization that. I used to say a little bit mockingly, well, maybe vision is the odd one out. And of course, you see people just looking at you as if you're a little bit crazy. To be fair, yes, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Um, namely, hang on a second, perhaps vision is the odd one out. Or perhaps we have mismodeled vision in a certain way because we focused on certain features in vision, like the topography of the visual system, meaning you've got a spatial arrangement of how the signals are um, are represented in the brain and transmitted to the next part of the brain. So from the retina, which has a specific organization, to the thalamus, to the visual cortex, beautifully spatially arranged. Smell? No, not like that. Just does its own thing. And there is a big difference because with vision, it's uh, it, it was long assumed that many things are um, genetically predetermined when it comes to this stereotypic organization, a stereotypic organization, stereotypic meaning um, that is really the same across all organisms of a species. And she did a really interesting experiment uh, with macaques uh, with not the primary visual cortex, but the fusiform face area where, where you recognize faces. And it turns out, and this is interesting, that actually this uh, spatial representation of uh, visual stimuli of faces is uh, contingent on experience, both in its development as well as its maintenance. And that blew my mind because it's much closer to the olfactory system where many of the signaling and how it builds up is actually, uh, it hinges on experience, how you're exposed to something, how you're trained uh, to recognize something. And while olfaction is still much more kind of haphazard and much more of a mosaic uh, compared to vision it shows to what extent we also need to rethink vision and when it comes to uh, experience to what extent is it less genetically determined but what's the influence of experience here and to what extent is it changeable and to what extent are certain structures actually uh, a developmental byproduct product there might be just there might ju just be a product of it's easier to develop and wire the system in a certain way but it's not necessary for it to function so my my other example i bring up at the end like one is uh, margaret livingstone showing like actually vision is much more flexible and dependent on experience uh, but on the other hand there's also turtles turtles the visual cortex of the turtles is not topographic it doesn't have the spatial representation which, with which vision is e always introduced in, in neuroscientific uh, lectures. So it doesn't seem to be actually, vision doesn't have to be topographic to work, to be vision, to do its function as a visual system and to allow for uh, motion and to allow for response to objects. So it might be really just a developmental byproduct which changes the way uh, by which we think structure and function are related. And that's, I think, an exciting also 
outlook. And this is where I say like, well, maybe vision is the odd one out, or we focus on the wrong features to understand the fundamental principles that explain what perception is and does. Yeah, if I if I remember correctly, the Margaret Livingstone work, um, you know, it has something in common with, um, you know, the Hubel and Weasel work on cats, right? These are macaques that don't see human faces. Um, I think all of the graduate students, all the techs that handle these macaques are wearing these, you know, big masks that maybe, you know, we're, are a little bit more familiar to us now. But so these macaques never see a human face. They see human hands that give them food, right? Um, and then later on, they're shown all of these different human faces and you see a completely different kind of developmentally triggered functioning pattern in, um, you know, where FFA would be for, for these macaques. Um, and so we know vision is hugely dependent on learning these kind of associations that happen on Earth with objects, how objects occlude, what spectrum of light you're going to see. Just there's a lot of interaction between handling objects and vision that helps animals learn about, you know, like just what the nature, what 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 visual, what what vision can tell you about the ontology of the world. So this, you know, this might imply that there's something really important about what smells you're exposed to developmentally um that you know that they're all this this whole kind of associational um net that there are probably you know these different periods that are rather critical for for development is there work along those lines oh there is i love that you're bringing that up actually uh so one thing is that uh what smells you're exposed to is will fundamentally change uh the 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 basically the arrangement the structure of the olfactory bulb in a way, because what you're having is people often thought that, and I should, I should do a little bit of an excursus here to, to explain what I, what I mean by that. Because one neat feature of the olfactory system uh, that first gave people the impression that it might look like vision and it turned out not to, is that when you've got all these kind of sensory neurons coming from your nose into, into the, uh, into your brain, namely the, the olfactory bulb, there is one feature, namely one sensory neuron expresses only one type of receptor, and all sensory neurons expressing one type of receptor converge in these things called glomeruli, which are these spherical neural structures. And uh, people thought this is genetically pre-wired, like where these neurons are going during development. Uh, but it turns out, actually, if you look at the early stages of development, um, you don't have the kind of one receptor neuron uh, uh, going into glomerulus, but you've got different uh, different receptor neurons into different uh, glomeruli and they get pruned by experience so that only later, at a later stage, you will have the kind of each glomerulus is representative of a receptor gene. That comes later in development. So there's a lot of uh, pruning and experience going on, depending on, of course, what you're exposed to. So to what extent, uh, what smells are in your environment, what are more prevalent, and also what, what people forget often is that you're not having exactly the same receptors over the whole time of your lifespan. Because uh, olfaction is called constantly renewing its sensory neurons. Otherwise, you would be smell blind after two or three uh, colds, for instance, because it would just die off. So you've got a constant rewiring, so to speak. And if you're changing habitats, which uh, if you let's say you move from, from Germany to Singapore, then to, to South Africa, then to, let's say, Brazil, if you were moving habitats, not just like for a two-week holiday, but really for a longer time, um, you're exposed to a different chemical environment, of course, because you've got different smells, you've got a different composition of smells, and your sensory system will adapt to that. So you will have a difference in terms of receptor expression, and which is kind of 
fantastic. So there is a reason, there's an absolute important behavior reason, developmental reason, why smell is so flexible as a system and why it cannot be just simply a map predetermined by some genetic bow plan. There is, this is why genetics is important. There is flexibility. This is why there's so much variation in our genetic makeup of the olfactory system. In order to actually be able to respond to this diversity of chemical environments and the change of habitats. And uh, I think we can learn a lot from that. Wow. So th- there's upregulation of different receptors in new environments. And there's like, like you, there's this beautiful uh, paper by uh, Leslie Vossel and uh, Andreas Keller, uh, Better Smelling Through Genetics. I love that one. And I think it's true because genetics has been really the, the founding stone on which modern olfactory science has been built. And we're still a lot of connections to how we perceive and how the system is structured. This is, this is going to be, there's going to be lots of more interesting studies coming out in the next decade. I think this book is based, um, you know, it's based on a really active engagement with, you know, this, this kind of wide swaths of literature from, you know, these kind of molecular and genetic studies on Drosophila all the way, um, you know, to historical texts. We learn some Greek um, in the book, um, you know, but it's also based on these interviews that you've done with the, these dozens of different olfaction researchers where, you know, you're kind of mapping for us a sense of the field, a sense of when and why convergence happens, about what gets funded, about what sparks interest. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that part of your work, just about what it was like to start recording these interviews? Because they seem like I don't know. I, I imagine there could be a whole other product that you make that are just kind of, you know, podcasts made of these interviews, which I imagine are these kind of lively conversations where you're getting a lot more than what's in the, you know, black and white literature that we can find on, you know, Google Scholar or whatever. Oh yeah. So this was actually why I love doing this book because um, I, I interviewed uh, I think 40, 44 different uh, researchers and it was so much fun because every conversation was different and uh, people really gave me their time. I mean, I had some conversations really over days and over over a week. Uh, so with, with Terry, Terry Acri, for instance, uh, actually at Cornell, uh, so your, your, your old home place, uh, he, he, for instance, I, I crashed at his couch and went to his lab for a week. And he just went, well, I have no idea what I'm going to say. So just leave it running, like let the recorder on. Uh, others were over uh, a couple of beers at the bar. Others were over the telephone. Every interview was different. And it was kind of semi-structured. I asked a couple of questions, but then the conversation just developed. And what is nice is uh, precisely what we often don't see when we look at ongoing research. It's namely, A, the personality of the field. This is a field where people come in from all sorts of uh, different disciplines. You've got chemistry, you've got behavioral biology, computational biology, you've got a couple of people from physics jumping in, psychology, a couple of philosophers even, so it's like diverse. And you ask how people identify the developments, see the history, see the problems, what questions they think should be asked. And you ask three people, you've got five answers if you're lucky, because people have different opinions. And that shows just to what extent this really is ongoing. And it gives A, a better understanding of how the field progresses, and it B, allowed me to do this kind of book, namely to identify the open issues, which you wouldn't get from the review literature. And you will get many things you only hear over a beer, namely, I was never convinced of that result because. And of course, you're like, Hold, hang on a second. Yes, it might look like that, because this is what I said earlier, I'm often unconvinced by certain truisms, such as, oh yeah, it bypasses the thalamus, therefore. You think, 
has that actually been studied or is that just one of those introductory sentences in the literature? And it is one of those introductory sentences in the literature, much more than it is actually really studied. So it gave me a better sense of the field and it also catapulted or changed my own work actually from being more of an observer and a participant observer in this field uh, towards wait a second, there are some questions I think could be developed and that could be developed experimentally as well. So this book changed me quite a lot. And uh, partly through these interviews and partly also through the people I interviewed. So I remember this one conversation with Gordon Shepard, who's an absolutely tremendous man. And I had the first interview I had, I never recorded. I was so ang- angry with myself because I hadn't met him before and we talked for f- over five hours. Just talking about olfaction, the history, things we found fascinating. I thought, I'm such an idiot. I should have already... Because I wasn't quite sure whether we'd, he, he'd be uh, happy to, to interview. And then I did another interview and it was, I think, three hours or something like that. And then I thought, oh, there was something I remember he said the first time, I'm doing another interview. Gordon wasn't having it because he said, like, listen, have you thought of going experimental? So instead of doing an interview, he trained me, he mentored me in terms of how to think of my own development and how to choose an experimental method. So people at some point started to treat you from an interviewer towards a colleague. And that was that was a nice thing to see. So these these interviews, they are at the heart of the book, part as a part of as, as an oral history of What's the field? What are the people? And partly also to allow people to ask their own questions through these interviews, because these are not things you will hear in the review literature. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, you know, that was a, a hell of a cliffhanger for me. Um, and the fact that you're going into this kind of um, empirical experimental. I mean, the work, the work in this book is empirical. Philosophical work is empirical. Right. Um, history is empirical. Um, but that you're going into this kind of experimental philosophy of olfaction. Um, I mean, I know, I know the book was just finished probably, you know, in the past year or so. Can you tell us a little bit about where that's going to go and what, what you're going to be working on as you kind of start this project? The book really starts where my own life now begins, so to speak. Uh, so the empirical part of the book were the interviews and really going to conferences and being in a lab and this sort of thing. But at some point, I identified certain questions I found interesting where I couldn't find enough literature where I thought like this is still ongoing this is still open I wonder and one of the things is precisely the cognitive basis and I mentioned a couple of times that I was so fascinated by the diversity of smell within one molecule the plural plurality the I contain multitudes and that's what I want to study this kind of ambiguity of smell and the cognitive biases involved in that and to what extent we can find or discover a neural signature for these kind of decisions that are involved in the perceptual process when when you have one molecule and you shift the perception by giving a word giving an image these kind of things so this is where I thought well I mentioned in the book a couple of times that we need to go away from the thinking from thinking of the brain as a spatial system and more in terms of a temporal system, that it's about measurement, about temporal coding, population coding. And one of the key instruments here, to, if you want to study the temporality of the brain, is EEG, electroencephalography, where you record the brain waves, you know, these kind of nice images people often show with the kind of the spiking, etc., and that it doesn't give you good spatial resolution, but it gives you good temporal resolution. So I thought the, the signature I want to understand, especially when people shift their perception of the same smell, like the wine, I, like you, you say, oh, there's vanilla, and suddenly you smell it. 
how does the temporal signature of that look like? And that is what I want to study next. Uh, so that's going to be the next couple of years. It hasn't started yet, simply for the reason is that I'm currently built, or the, the lab is currently built and, and renovated because there was asbestos in the building. So they're rebuilding the entire thing. And then there's a pandemic right now. So it might be a little bit delayed. Um, but uh, it should start if everything goes well, so fingers crossed, uh, in spring 2021. And I have fantastic colleagues who are actually helping me because I'm jumping in with, of course, a little bit, it's a bit of a hubris, a bit naive, like if yeah, I'm doing science now uh, from a philosophical perspective. Uh, but I have great colleagues. I've got Ina Pius, she's at Bloomington, she's at Bloomington here, and she like she's the queen of EEG. She's methodologically really thorough. She She's going to tell me if I do bullshit. So I, I, I trust people to tell me the truth. And then I've got, of course, Terry Acre, I mentioned a couple of times, who built the olfactometer to help me, um, like, to expose people to odors in a very controlled manner. And then, of course, there's my my uh, friend and mentor, Stuart Feuerstein, who, with whom it's just like, through, like, he told me a lot about olfaction, but also he showed me how to think scientifically, philosophically in combination. Because for a scientist, I think he's the most philosophically minded person compared even to many philosophers. I mean, radical mind, and that kind of inspired me. I mean, I, I can't wait to see what comes out of that lab. I, you know, you'll get no shortages of emails from me, um, in, you know, introducing you to colleagues who I know would be fascinated by this work. Um, I guess the thing I just wanted to leave off on now is that I think smell and loss of smell is something that um, people are really attuned to, that they're really scared of because of the pandemic. Um, that, you know, um, obviously there can be people that are completely symptom free, that are carriers, that um, have, you know, have the disease, sp can spread it to others, have antibodies. But this loss of smell has seemed to become one of the kind of this definitional thing that separates you know, your COVID experience from having some other flu-like illness. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you've been thinking about like loss of smell and the way it's been in the news and how people are reacting to it um, just as it's be kind of become very present on people's minds? It is kind of a shame that a pandemic had to happen for people to take smell a bit more seriously. And um, it's a, it's one of the most you could say important things that have happened to the olfactory community since the olfactory uh, receptor discovery when it comes to the public perception and for people to take this more seriously because many people often first just start to say yeah but you're just losing your sense of smell and it's just a loss, loss of uh, life quality a what do you mean by just like losing life quality is kind of point of life that you have quality uh so one thing is for instance as a diagnostic marker because you've got many people who don't show symptoms but they lose their sense of smell so they don't show any of the other symptoms but they might be identifiable through that so this is why it's so important the other thing is it might tell us how the virus actually affects uh, our body how it enters how it affects also the central nervous system so there were many studies showing to what extent uh, people have a decline in memory or some kind of other cognitive uh, detrimental effect that might be connected to the pathway because what you're really having you're inhaling them so uh, and and as i mentioned a couple of times two synapses straight into the cortex great source of infection and there's of, of course also a lot of question to what extent you regain your smell or not so are the stem cells the basal cells in your epithelium affected or not there's a lot of uncertainty going on uh, how long it lasts the anosmia are there different causes for the anosmia in terms of the loss of smell um 
What is the cause? To what extent is the duration potentially indicating different causes? I mean, there's there's a lot going on. And what this showed to me is two things. A, why we should tell, uh, take smells more seriously, but B, also how great the community is. Because as soon as that happened, there was a, a consortium formed of uh, smell scientists all over the world working on this together. Like there's a Slack channel um, where, where people are really contributing. They're gathering questions, questionnaires, interviewing people, collecting the literature, doing reviews. Uh, lots of uh, current studies are coming out of that right now. So you've got, for instance, at the NIH, uh, jo uh, uh, Paola Joseph, for instance, who does great work uh, when it comes to the clinical setting. There's lots of stuff going on. And it shows, A, what great community that is, and B, how much we still have to learn when it comes to smell as affecting the brain and how we smell. Because if a virus can enter um, and, and alter really the way signals are processed and, and, and the decline of cognitive uh, functions, we should take other, also other areas of smell more seriously when we think of pollution, for instance, which have been linked also to Parkinson, for instance, so since the 1980s, actually, since Richard Doty started on that. So... In terms of climate change and pollution, etc., I think this virus made us much more aware of uh, the importance of air quality, of exposure to pol uh, pollution, and what effects that has on our brain through the sense of smell. So there's lots of going on, lots of stuff going on here, and I find it concerning and exciting at the same time. I think. Yeah, and I think for anybody that's um, you know similarly um, concerned or excited about the public health implications of understanding smell, the philosophical under, you know, implications of understanding smell, the scientific importance of, you know, figuring out what this chemo sensation and perception is, they could, you know, this is this, it's a university press book, but uh, it's, uh, I think, a robust, uh, thorough introduction to all of these topics and, and much more. I highly recommend Smellosophy. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Barwich. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun.